The Bible reading for today is, the, is from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. You can find this passage printed in your outline. That's the book of John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the queens of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it again in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Okay, thanks Rowan and Laura. Yeah, give it up to Rowan and Laura. Oh, I don't need this one. Oh. Okay. All right, good to see you all. Uh, welcome. Uh, David's my name if you haven't met me. Uh, and uh, I'm going to kick off straight with a bit of a video. Uh, this is from the Days of Jesus. Um, and this is like a digital reconstruction of the temple building. Uh, as it was in the days of Jesus. Um, the temple was the location where the people of God could come into the presence of God. Uh, this is the court of the Gentiles you're looking at, a place where all nations could come. Uh, they could gather, they could pray to the God of Israel. Uh, but you can see what a magnificent building uh, the temple was. This is the court of Israel, the sort of inner sanctum of the temple. <clears throat> and so uh, the temple had these walls, you know, the outer walls, the court of the Gentiles, the court of Israel, and then inside that the priests did their thing, offered sacrifices, and then of course there was a curtain separating everyone from access uh, to the Ark of the Covenant, the, the presence of God amongst his people. So what was the purpose of this building? It was a place where people could meet with God uh, to offer prayer, to draw near to God in prayer, to offer sacrifices to remove their sin. Uh, and the, the people building the building tried to capture a sense of awe. This is the presence of the God of the universe. Uh, and so they tried to really capture a sense of the awe of God as they built the building. It's interesting, um, Herod the Great was the, the prime mover behind the renovation of the temple. It had been rebuilt 500 years earlier, but just uh, you know, over the, the next few hundred years, it had really been trashed. And so Herod the Great underwent uh, like a, 
like about an 80-year restoration, renovation project. Uh, and that renovation had been going for 46 years by the time Jesus arrives at the temple in John chapter 2. It's not complete yet. It won't be complete for another 25, 30 years after John chapter 2. But it's kind of weird that Herod would have such a key role with the temple uh, because Herod was kind of uh, an ancient uh, Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump is the sort of modern-day equivalent. Such a mix of contrasts. You know, proud, arrogant, in many ways godless, and yet Herod had utterly devoted himself to this temple rebuilding project. There was something uh, of a religious significance, of a, a devotion uh, that he carried with him, uh, and he was incredibly invested in seeing this temple rebuilt. Now, we've had our own building project this year. Uh, this building, uh, a place to gather, to pray to God, to grow as his people, to worship God together. Uh, but in Australia today, it's generally not churches and temples that are the big building projects. So what are the big building projects in Australia today or in Australian life? Stadiums, yeah? Barangaroo? Casinos? Westfield. All right, let's have a look at what I've got here. You've done pretty well. So this one, anyone recognise this shopping mall? Chadston, someone said, yeah, in, in Melbourne. I ne don't even know exactly where it is in Melbourne, never been there. It's already Australia's biggest shopping centre, three times the size of Tugra Westfield. Like, Tugra Westfield is dwarfed, but they're in the process of a $700 million expansion of Chadston Mall that starts uh, in, in coming days. Uh, or this building... Recognise this. So this is someone mentioned Barangaroo or the casino. So this is called Crown Casino. Is that right? Yeah, Crown Sydney. Uh, look, if you haven't been to Sydney in a while, it, it's it's there in the skyline. All right, this is sort of an artistic impression. It, it's not completed yet. Is that right? I don't go to Sydney if I can avoid it. So Central Coast has all you need. Uh, so well over one billion dollars in building costs for this casino hotel structure or what about this one someone mentioned a stadium uh, this is how sydney football stadium is meant to look in coming uh, years uh, and i'll take you a sneak peek inside there it is fireworks you know ticket tape all that sort of thing um, but it's been in the news this week because it's been in a hundred million dollar cost blowout so before the building starts, they're now saying it's going to cost at least $700 million. Uh, now, who knows where that will land by the end. The colossal building projects throughout history are a testimony to what people worship. Yeah? And so, generally, through former generations, it has been temples, churches, cathedrals, so off mosques, uh, all that sort of thing have been the focal point. But interesting, isn't it? Today, our colossal building projects are very different. Now it's casinos, hotels, sports stadiums, shopping centres. Now, what does that say about us? 
What does that say about the hearts of Australian people? What do you reckon? Our, our worship has changed. Could it be that we've actually stopped worshipping the creator God uh, and now we are worshipping sport, money, fashion, self, stuff, yeah, all those sort of things? Uh, it's tricky, isn't it? Because I'm not saying everyone who walks into a shopping centre is a, is a money worshipper or a fashion worshipper. It doesn't work like that. But lots of Aussies do seem to worship no other god than money, fashion, self, possessions and all that sort of stuff. Uh, even as you come to Christmas time, you sort of think here is a season where it's a religious festival. Uh, and at the heart of it throughout history has been Jesus Christ and he's coming into our world. But for most, that is just a distant echo. Uh, and for most, it's just a chance to get together. It's families big and stuff, exchanging stuff. Lots of money exchanges hands. I noticed in the business park, everyone's closed down for Christmas. Uh, I was just walking through preparing my talk this morning. But there's one business that's booming Australia Post has a little office down there and they are active this morning and there was just massive hundreds of parcels out on their car park and there's all these vans and they're trying to pack them in, get them to people so that we've got what we need to properly celebrate Christmas and we need the stuff. All right, two, two key questions today. What do you worship and where and how do you worship? That's what we're wrestling with. Uh, and John chapter 2 uh, is the focal point. Jesus comes to the temple, and the temple is chaos. Now, I want to show you another picture. Anyone recognise this picture? Well, the fish market, right? So this is the Sydney fish markets. In the next couple of days, it will look like this. It's going to be crowded. Now, you kind of expect that. The whole purpose of the building is buying and selling of seafood. And we Aussies love seafood at Christmas, and so it's just going to be jam-packed. Um, but the temple courtyard in Jesus' day had become kind of like this, yeah, especially during Passover. So Jesus arrives there at Passover. You have all these Jewish pilgrims from all over the world coming to celebrate this religious festival, and many of them would turn up and not be able to bring their own animals. So what they would do, the priests had set up this system where you could come and buy a dove or, or, a, or a lamb or a goat or whatever it is you were going to sacrifice, some grain. You could come and buy it. And the priests had set up in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, the place God had set aside for the nations to come and pray to God. The priests had decided in their wisdom, well, that's the perfect spot to set up Paddy's Market. You know, and, and where we can do the buying and selling, uh, you can get your sacrificial animal and then you can walk into the court of Israel and offer it there. And business was booming. But when Jesus sees it all, he gets furious. He gets angry. Uh, the temple was meant to be a place of worship, a place for prayer for all nations. And Jesus says, you've turned it into a marketplace. 
Now, as Jesus stands there watching, what he does is he makes a whip uh, out of leather strands and he braids it together and he starts cracking this whip. And you just think, man, this is not the Jesus you think of, is it? It's not the gentle Jesus born in the manger type Jesus. This is angry adult Jesus. Um, Let me show you a few pictures of uh, how we think of Jesus. There is Jesus. He loves children. And that's true. You will read that in the Gospels. Here's another one. Jesus loves animals. No, I'm not sure. You know, like I know that a dove does land on him at his baptism, but you don't hear a lot else of Jesus' interaction with animals uh, through the Gospels. Uh, or this one, how good is that? The Aussie Jesus, blue-eyed, sun-bleached hair, the surf in the background. <laughs> there it is. And he was wearing sort of thongs, uh, which, you know, so there it is. Um, but, and, and so they, they, there's so many of the ways we think about Jesus or imagine Jesus, but here in John 2 is the real Jesus. And he gets angry. And what is it that triggers Jesus' anger? You know, this man of such love, this man of such beauty and gentleness, this man who does welcome children, uh, it is, he gets angry when religious people make it hard for ordinary people to worship God. Jesus gets angry when religious people make it hard for ordinary people to worship God. Uh, so our sermon series is called Jesus Brings, and we're going to focus on things like forgiveness, joy. Jesus brings joy. He brings hope. He brings new life. But Jesus also brings judgment on corrupt religion. That's one of the things he brought. Uh, Matthew chapter 23 says this. Uh, Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He doesn't hold back at all, does he? You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves don't enter, nor will you let those who are trying to enter. Now, I'm constantly meeting people who um, have been turned off Christianity, and it might be like an experience people have had in the past, you know, when they're growing up or going to a church school or whatever, where they just feel scarred uh, about religion or Christianity. Uh, And it has turned them off. And I just want to say, please don't let those sort of things put you off. Because chances are Jesus would be just as angry about the religious hypocrisy and corruption and uh, all, all that sort of stuff. The bigotry, the pride. Jesus would be just as angry about that in our day as he was in his own day. Jesus was rightly angry when religious people put barriers in the way of ordinary people coming into relationship with God. So he makes the whip, he drives out the sellers and the buyers and the doves and the, the, the animals. Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? Uh, and everyone at the temple is thinking, who does Jesus think he is? Look at verse 18. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? You can't just come in and start cracking a whip and driving everyone. Who do you think you are? 
prove you have the authority. And Jesus answers them, verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And it's just like an astoundingly courageous thing for Jesus to say. The Jews were outraged. It's taken us 46 years to rebuild this temple and we're not even finished yet. And you think you're going to raise it in three days. Uh, You know, there were thousands of people involved in the temple building project. Some of the stones were 600 tons in weight. That is... That, that, that is big weight. I don't know, how, how, how can we think about that? My, my car's about one and a half tonne. Right? You get, f- what, 40 of my cars? Is that how it works? Right? One stone, that, that much weight. I don't know how they move the darn things. But uh, there was no way, in the people's minds, there was no way anyone was going to destroy the temple. And the thought that Jesus could then rebuild it in three days, it was just utterly absurd. You know, it's like me going down to Barangaroo as the coast prophet, right? The central coast prophet. And I say, destroy this casino and I will raise it again in three days. And everyone would think the guy is, a, is an idiot, right? Uh, you know, because not only has he not able to destroy the temple, but raising it again in three days, ludicrous. Um, And that's how they felt about Jesus. He was crazy. It was laughable. But look at verse 21. See, the disciples heard and reflected on his words. And John says this, The temple Jesus had spoken of was his own body. And after he was raised from the dead on the third day, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Remember, Jesus had said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they're all thinking the physical temple, but by Jesus' words, he was basically declaring the physical temple in Jerusalem to be obsolete. Its day had passed. And its day had passed because with his arrival, with the coming of Jesus into our world, God had come amongst us. The need for a temple had been done away with. Uh, A physical temple building was no longer needed to meet God because now people could meet God in the flesh. Uh, And the tragedy is that God comes amongst his people and they don't recognise him. They reject him. You know, they follow him for a while. All the miracles he was doing, they were exciting. There was a bit of a buzz. But then they reject him. They mock him. They spit on him. And they crucify him. And they do exactly what Jesus said. Tear down this temple. That's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. God, present amongst his people was torn down by the very people who were so dedicated to building this massive, big, physical structure. They tore down the real thing, the temple of God, God amongst his people. But three days later, God raised Jesus to life again. Uh, Tear down this temple and I will rebuild it again in three days. 
And you can imagine the, 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 the apostles' minds firing when they finally realised Jesus has risen from the dead. Ah, that's what he was talking about all along. Now, about 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Herod's temple was destroyed by the Romans. Here's a, um, a painting from 150 years ago of the destruction of the temple as the Romans invaded. It had been complete for six years. Grand opening happened six years ago. So what, what is it? About 80 years to rebuild, last for six years, and then it is destroyed by the Romans. <clears throat> All that remains today is one of the walls, the Western Wall. Uh, some Jews still go there to pray today. Uh, and you'll find Donald Trump also uh, occasionally turns up to the Western Wall uh, to pray. But that temple in Jerusalem is no longer the place to meet God. And throughout the world, the great temples, mosques, cathedrals, awesome buildings, but they are not needed to meet God anymore. Uh, their day is past. Here you go, Notre Dame Cathedral earlier this year. Now, I don't know how you felt but I can remember feeling a sense, of, a sense of loss, a sense of grief. You know, this is a, a, one of the great historic buildings going down in flames. But I was really surprised by the worldwide grief, uh, the distress, the calls for urgent rebuilding. What is going on in people's thinking that it's sort of like, this, this is a project that we must all rally behind to rebuild this cathedral. Uh, it seems like people see some eternal divine significance to this building. But seriously, buildings like that are not needed, are not needed to get in relationship with God. In fact, buildings like that can often be a hindrance to relationship with God. Right? They're not needed, firstly, and they can even be a hindrance because the sort of <clears throat> religion they promote actually, instead of pointing people to Jesus, actually puts barriers be between people and relationship with God. Jesus is now the only place we can meet with God. John 14, verse 6 It'll be on the wall calendar uh, next year. Right? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. Don't go to the temple in Jerusalem. That's not where to find God. Notre Dame Cathedral. That's not the location. If you want to meet God, only one place you go, and that is through Jesus. And for us living today, that means hearing the message of Jesus and responding in faith and repentance. That is how we meet God today. Uh, we heard um, that Sandy Taylor died this week. Here's a photo I took, oh, Sandy took for me earlier this year. Um, so Sandy died just a few days ago. But just over a year ago, uh, about a year and a half ago, Sandy was uh, diagnosed with cancer. Uh, and in the months to follow, she had very... So it was quite extensive cancer. And she had very aggressive chemotherapy and other treatment. 
and her body was just not coping with it all. Sort of like, uh, sort of shut down. She went into intensive care, <coughs> and the and the <coughs> excuse me, and the family thought that she may well die uh, back then, you know, just over a year ago. Uh, and in the midst of this crisis that was taking place back then, her son-in-law Paul walked into the hospital room, and she was in this sort of haze, and uh, she saw his t-shirt uh, and it had these wings on it, his eagle wings, right? but she thought an angel, she, she thought it was an angel uh, coming into the room and she, her immediate thought was, I don't deserve to go to heaven, what am, what am I doing? I've died and gone to heaven but I don't deserve to be here. Uh, and so what happened then in the days as she recovered uh, is she she came out of intensive care realising she needed to get right with God, that she wasn't ready to die. Uh, an incredibly determined woman, hey? She knew her time and she knew she wasn't ready back then. Uh, she had some family business to deal with, uh, but she also had some business uh, to deal with before God. Um, and she knew Christianity was true. <clears throat> She'd been observing it for many years Sonia had become a Christian 18 years ago. And she'd been, uh, Sandy had been watching. Uh, she'd been aware of the change that it brought to Sonia and her family's lives. Um, and there were other factors, other people that God would bring into her life where she'd go, oh, I know Christianity's true, but she'd just been keeping it on the edge, pushing it aside. But as she faced her own death, Sandy knew she wasn't ready. She needed to get right with God. And so she said to Sonia, I need to talk to Dave. Uh, and, uh, and so I went around to her place. Uh, we sat out on her back patio in Berkeley Vale. <clears throat> I talked to her about Jesus and his death on the cross in our place. Uh, and his resurrection. And I told her some of the stories of Jesus, you know, like the prodigal son, who, was, who utterly didn't think he deserved any favour from the father, and how the father welcomed him home. I said, that's how, what God is like. I told her about the Pharisee and the tax collector who come to the temple to pray. And the tax collector just thinks, I'm utterly unworthy. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it's the tax collector who went home right with God. Thanks, brother. It was the tax collector who went home right with God on that day and not the religious Pharisee. And I talked to her about when Jesus was on the cross. And there was the thief on the cross. And the thief knew that he deserved the death sentence. But the thief turned to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, amazing, hey? So this guy meets God, comes in, becomes accepted to, by God, dying on a cross next to Jesus. Uh, and so I, just, I talked these things through with Sandy she knew she didn't go to heaven, didn't deserve to go to heaven. 
but she was so happy to hear that salvation wasn't dependent on her track record, which she knew wasn't good enough. She learnt that salvation is a gift that is given through faith in Jesus and his death and resurrection. And she didn't need a temple or cathedral or a church building. She did get to come here uh, and experience our building, but it was there on the back patio of her house in Berkeley Vale that she met the living God and came into relationship with him and was embraced as his daughter. Uh, and she has now gone home to be with her heavenly father. The tears uh, will flow for the family in the, ne- in the coming days, but also that joy and reassurance that she has gone home uh, to be with her heavenly father. So come back to the two questions uh, we began with at the start. Firstly, what will you worship? We build massive casinos, sports stadiums, shopping malls. And the question is, could it be that our society has stopped worshipping the creator and we are now worshipping the things he has made? Money, stuff, fashion, even ourselves. There's a lot of self-worship. What is it that brings meaning, hope, joy, certainty into our lives? Is it money, leisure, fashion, sport, self? I think deep down we kind of know that those things will not deliver. Even those who chase after them kind of know deep down they will not deliver ultimate satisfaction. But what about you? What brings you certainty in life? What brings you meaning? Hope, joy, uh, what brings you all those things? Because you know the casinos, the stadiums, the shopping malls, they they will all come crashing down one day. Uh, and we'll look on them and just go, that was, they're a relic of a bygone era. Here today, gone tomorrow. They brought me joy, but it was fleeting joy. It wasn't lasting joy. God alone, the creator, he is the one worthy of all praise. He is the one worthy of our worship. And he is the one who will bring ultimate meaning and hope and joy uh, and confidence into our lives. And brings us to the second question, where and how will you worship? The religious people of the first century poured their lives into the physical temple, the focal point of their worship. And within six years of its completion, six years after the grand opening, the Romans came and trashed it to the ground. And all that's left now is a single wall the wailing wall, where they go to weep and to pray. But Jesus had made that building obsolete even before the grand opening, when he declared, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it again in three days. Through his own body broken on the cross, through his mighty resurrection from the dead, Jesus brought new access to God, Every wall has now been broken down. There is nothing standing in the way of any one of us 
coming directly into the presence of God, being welcomed into his presence, into his home as his children. So I want to ask, will you come to Jesus? Will you come into God's family through him? And if you are one of his family, will you worship him alone and not chase after the other gods uh, of the world we live in? I'm going to lead us in prayer. Will you pray with me? Just three simple words. Sorry, thank you, please. God, our Father, we are sorry that we have lived our own way. We are sorry for the way that we have robbed you of the worship and the glory we, you deserve. We're sorry that when you give us good things, we start worshipping them as if they were ultimate as if they were what is going to bring joy and meaning and satisfaction to our lives. We are sorry for the way we've lived so self-centeredly. Father, we want to thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he came into our world, that he died for me, for each one of us. We want to thank you that he offers forgiveness, complete cleansing, not what we deserve, but what we so desperately need. And we want to thank you that Jesus rose from the dead, that there is now a way into your presence eternally. And so, Father, please forgive each one of us. Forgive me. Please accept us into your family, into your kingdom, and please help each one of us to give ourselves to Jesus, to trust him as saviour, to honour him as king, and to worship him this Christmas and every day until he comes again, until the consummation of your kingdom that comes with Jesus' return. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.